So we talk on this podcast a lot about movie vegetables, and Ikiru is one I had seen before and had probably put in that category. And when I sat down to watch it again this time, I was even kind of half on my phone, even though it's in Japanese. And I was just like, <laughs> you know what? I've already seen it before, but I need to rewatch it. And I'm going to say, even though this is a Japanese movie from the 50s, that it's a step beyond when we talk about a movie vegetable where you just have to watch it because it's good. Because this movie was so compelling and so good, I sat the phone aside, even though I'd seen it before, and got totally engrossed. And just it, it really did uh, suck me in. And this is just a legit good movie that I can't believe how well it holds up what 67 years after its after its initial release and it's about japanese bureaucracy like yeah i don't I, know i i was kind of i honestly i was kind of thinking the same thing as i was watching i was like you know this is i mean as far as movie vegetables go and especially movie vegetables that we've covered i think it still does qualify as a movie vegetable probably at least for like most people true a majority a majority of the listeners but only barely so so we've, we've talked about this movie. We're doing it as a bonus episode. We had talked before about maybe even not including it because it kind of falls into our category. It's not a specific historic event, and it's not a specific historical figure. But we wanted to use it primarily as an excuse to talk about Akira Kurosawa. But before we get to him, I did want to address the, the movie itself. It's pretty simple. Basically, you have an old guy probably nearing retirement who's a bureaucrat in Japan, and he gets a cancer diagnosis and decides to start making math. <laughs> no, just kidding. That's, that's, uh, that's the other one. Okay, no. Just uh, basically just starts to examine his life and kind of realizes that maybe his whole life has been not pointless necessarily, but yeah, basically pointless. Like, what am I doing? What have I ever done? I've spent 30 years in this job I hate, and now my life's just over, and no one wants me around. He goes and tries to have a relationship with his son, and his son's moving on with his life, and him and his wife are talking about what to do with the dad's inheritance, not even knowing that he has this terminal diagnosis. And there's actually a little bit of American beauty to it, too, in the sense that he kind of is just like, well, I'm just going to stop showing up for my job and go party. And decide to actually live my life here at the end of it i don't know it's just it's just kind of fascinating or compelling i guess to follow, follow him around and it, it does a good job of giving these heartfelt moments when he starts singing the sad song in the bar and everyone else kind of starts to tear up and then finally after kind of going through this existential crisis he has one last mission and the script kind of does it perfectly where we had seen early on these moms in the community are wanting a park or this issue to be dealt with with like i forget there's some kind of septic issue or basically this park is just not safe to even be in or it's not even a park so they want to turn it into a park that's like the first thing that we see in the movie right because um, he's he's sitting in the office and yeah those the that group of of ladies comes in and they basically um yeah they, they want a park or they want some sort of like lagoon kind of like pumped out and they want a, a park built and they get the runaround from the entire right. city government. Everyone says, oh, that's not our job. You need to go talk to these people. They say, well, that's not really, we don't really do that. You should go talk to these people. And they end up getting sent like all the way around to every single department. Right. And then, yeah. And then after our main character, the protagonist, do they ever say his name? Uh, Yeah, because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Watanabe, the same as the actor oh, that right, we know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, so when Watanabe goes from 
kind of stops partying for a second. He's like, you know what? I, I have enough time to still do some good. And he finally goes back to his job after everyone's been speculating that he's, oh, right. you know, just, just left. And yeah, he finally goes back to his job. And then that's like the thing that he does is he, he gets the park built for those ladies. Right. And they can't even just skip over that. But yeah, yeah. So as far as the screenwriting goes, though, that's why I just thought it was really cool. It's like they almost set it up as like a Chekhov's gun thing where they show the runaround that the women are getting at the beginning just as almost kind of a comedic element and just kind of to show the futility of bureaucracy and that that's the world this guy lives in. But then again, they use it as the Chekhov's gun where then that's what they come back to at the end when he's looking for something to find meaning in his life with. He goes and now fulfills that quest and says, no, 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 stop giving them the runaround. We're going to fix this and figure out how to fix this instead of just letting someone else deal with it in the whole bureaucratic way. Well, and it also it does a good job of showing exactly how big of an accomplishment it is that he does end up getting the park built because it's a perfect example of showing and not telling Mm. if he just like got them the park built and someone's like, wow, you did a really good job. Normally, that's a really hard thing to do. It doesn't really sink in as much as when we see the ladies go from department to department to department, you know, and how frustrated they get. And they're still there, you know, all those months later that he's been on sick leave or whatever. Right. And we even see the trouble he ha- he goes through where he's getting the run around a little bit and basically just has to put his foot down and say, no, enough of this. Let's get it done with right. no real, you know, he's not that important. He's in charge of his he's basically in charge of his one little department. but. Just because he's stubborn, he kind of gets enough other people to get on board. And then, of course, he does ultimately die. And they're reminiscing a lot of this at his funeral. And then you got people swooping in, wanting to take credit for what he did. It's like, well, he wasn't qualified to build a park, not willing to recognize that the park wouldn't have been built without his spearheading the project. Yes. And everybody wants to take credit, specifically the uh, the deputy mayor. Mm-hmm. The politicians coming in. Yep. Yeah. They they all want to they want to say, well, you know, he was an, an integral part of getting this park built. But, you know, ultimately it was it was us that did it. And then, uh, yeah, that's actually a, kind of a, a really interesting scene. I, I, I mean, I don't know if that qualifies as a single scene. It's like 25 or 30 minutes long there at the end of the movie. Yeah. But at the week when they're discussing whether or not he knew he had cancer because they none of them knew. Oh, right. They're debating it. Right. And then as they're they're talking about it they realize you know what no he like they remember stuff oh right about you know little things that he said and he you know they come to the conclusion oh you he he did know that he was gonna die and i think it i I don't remember which department head it was i think it was maybe one of the guys that worked in his department is like eventually is like you know what no he he did get the park built like he is the guy who who did this oh and so he says you know this is the he he was the guy who got the park built and we should all be more like him and we should have this courage to go to work and cut through all the red tape and just get stuff done like he did. And, you know, it'll it'll be so much better for the city. Right. And then at the very end, you know, you see them. Somebody comes up and asks for a, a project and immediately the new the guy who, who took over the head of that department is going to send those people away. And that guy stands up like he's going to say something or, you know, say, no, we need to you know, we need to get this done. And he doesn't do anything. He just sits back down and everything. The government just goes back to running exactly the way it did before. Right. Kind of like that spirit died with Watanabe on the playground. Right. And so, yeah, that that's essentially the movie. And I want to talk about some of the elements before we come back to the filmmaking and why this movie is 
so well renowned and we're still talking about it this much after the fact in Kurosawa. But first, one of the reasons we wanted to include this too is this is an opportunity to talk about bureaucracy in general as a human construct and it's got a very bad rap and largely justifiably so but i also feel like there is a need for a certain level of bureaucracy in our society otherwise you would kind of just have chaos or everything would be subjective and you kind of need to have certain steps to get things accomplished or it would actually be messier so despite the mess that bureaucracies cause i think they also help lessen overall chaos most of the time it's complicated yeah well and i think bureaucracies it's almost like it's turned into kind of a bad word right just because of what it's kind of morphed into obviously when it was first started or was being studied it you know it was like oh well if we have these like written processes for everything everything will be so much more efficient but i think the main issue is that you'd end up with processes for processes for processes and right people developing processes to kind of safeguard their positions versus actually making things efficient and that's even a line in the movie where they basically say the best way to keep your job is to do nothing yes yes so yeah basically the definition and again not to, i'm not going the full webster's thing but just you know generally speaking it's just administrative systems of institutions and you know you know with non-elected officials they kind of have to make policy or just run whatever thing you're talking about so every institution is going to have some level of bureaucracy organizing its own structure whether you're talking about a school system or a bank or business there's gonna be just some level of administration bureaucracy to run the thing and i thought it was interesting seeing the origin of the word so the french came up with it when they were kind of first studying it in the 18th century but it's it's the combination of the french word bureau and then the the greek for power which is you know kratos or whatever so basically it means the power of the desk in a sense, or the power of the office is bureaucracy. Okay. And so that, I thought that was kind of a neat origin. And then it was uh, Max Weber, who, again, I'm not super familiar with, what was a name I had heard. He actually studied them quite a lot and seemed to actually advocate for the necessity of bureaucracies. Basically, he just argued that they were efficient and rational and just a way to organize human activity and systems in a hierarchy that is just necessary for order and efficiency and to reduce favoritism, which is kind of what I was saying. If it was just kind of subjective, you could have a lot of people getting upset over perceived favoritism. And then he also kind of outlined what you needed to kind of constitute a bureaucracy. So actually on the Wikipedia page here, it lists kind of the characteristics of Weber's ideal bureaucracy. Just running through this real quickly, you have some kind of hierarchical organization with formal lines of authority, each having a fixed area of activity, a very rigid division of labor, you know, regular and continuous tasks assigned to everybody. This department's in charge of that. This person's in charge of that. People within the department have different activities or they're responsible for. Just so you always have one go-to person. And again, it's about efficiency. So it, it seems like it can muddy the waters and make things a mess, which obviously it does. But at its base level, I think there's a a reason for that. Yeah, so just wanted to talk about a little bit about the history of bureaucracy and the study of bureaucracy, because we all kind of know it's something we that we bemoan today, but may actually be essential for functioning societies. And it looks like it's been around just about as long as humans have been writing things down. Well, it's kind of just an inevitability of, I mean, you're going to have, if any process you have, you kind of have to have a system regarding uh, revolving around that process. I mean, it's just kind of an right. inevitability that they didn't get really named until later. So they were, they were around forever, 
but we, they were just kind of a thing that didn't have a name. Right. So then the next step is to talk about where this movie is set. So this is this is movies from 1952 Japan. The script the script was actually finished in early 52. So it actually timed out. It would have been written during the Allied occupation. Still, the Allied occupation post World War II also ended in 52 basically right after the script was finished. So the movie basically came out in the post-occupation era, but was produced or at least written during the occupation era. So that was just kind of an interesting transition for Japan. Was there, I didn't catch anything. Was there any mention of like culturally what was going on at the time? Like, was there any mention of talking about the war or talking about the the occupation? Like I, I didn't catch anything, which I, I thought almost lent to the movie's kind of timelessness where it's like great point. i mean obviously it's it's black and white and you know you look at how the the people are dressed and you look at the cars like okay that's the 50s but it's not necessarily like one of those stories where it can only take place in the like this is one of those movies that's probably like infinitely remakeable for whatever time period because it's just a guy who's gonna die living up his last days which actually when we get to talking about kurosawa there have been multiple remakes and homages to to his stuff yeah oh yes we will get to that and uh no you're you're absolutely right there's almost a confusing lack of reference to world war ii in this movie but it's not like it's set in 52 but made in the 70s or 80s and they they just forgot to include it it's like no this was made basically at the tail end of the occupation and they just still chose to ignore it or meant any mention of the war or the allies there might be a few mentions of people who fought in the war based on their ages and stuff but it's just basically ignored and i, I did watch a, a video on youtube to kind of get a quick summary of the occupation so you could compare it to when we invaded iraq in the early 2000s and our failure at nation building in the aftermath of that and japan was kind of the total opposite where it just went great. We made a point to not vilify the emperor, which kind of helped keep him in power and ease that transition. And basically, it was a almost kind of a no-fault thing, where we basically gave everyone, everyone was forgiven, and no, I say no harm, no foul. There was obviously a lot of harm and a lot of fouls, but the past was the past, and it was all about moving forward, and the Japanese bought into the American help, and within a very short time, the economy was booming. So there was a lot of American aid and presence that you know the Americans did pull out in 1952. And it was just kind of a smooth transition. And the Japanese economy was quickly booming because of that assistance and their buying into that assistance. And there wasn't like any, you know, we saw with you know, very, well, a million places all over the world, various factions vying for power that just couldn't get along and just the transition didn't work. Japan just seems to have mostly lacked that and the transition was just great. And that's why, you know, today you don't even think about them ever having really struggled. Or in, you know, but obviously they did in the immediate post-war period because they didn't have food. I mean, they were starving right after World War II because of all their trade routes being cut off. Yeah. Which we talked about, I think, earlier. Right. And in Grave of the Fireflies, yeah. That's what it was, yeah. So yeah, it's it's just remarkable how quickly they rebounded as a country and a people it's uh, very impressive and the movie doesn't necessarily highlight that enough other than the fact that it seems like a normal normal westernized country with no serious issues just seven years after nuclear bombs were dropped on two of their cities yeah it's one of those like weird things in history it's almost like if you had to pick 
two countries to have to go through some sort of like post-war reconstruction and be like really efficient and be really good at that kind of thing it'd be like it'd be germany and japan Mm. just because you know the efficiency and the very you know we're gonna do this and do that and um are you familiar with the comedian eddie izzard Yes. Okay. He has he in one of his uh, stand-ups from like 1999 or 2000. He talks about how the Germans and the Japanese should have like they should be the peacekeepers of the world. Oh, like anytime there's right. like <laughs> anytime there's like a you know like a dictator or something that's like getting powerful, they should just parachute in the Germans and the Japanese. They can huh. be like, hey, look, we've been through this before, and you know, and and here, yeah, but. Yeah, well, yeah, and we could talk for a while about about Izzard, but that's not really relevant to... <laughs> You're right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but let's do talk about Akira Kurosawa. Yes. So I was going to ask, and I, I may have asked this before, I'm not sure, but why is this the first Kurosawa movie that we're doing? Why Why was there none? Why? I mean, as far as the... Uh, like, why Why was none of his samurai stuff? Uh, oh, right, as the timeline goes. So... Because of a lack of his films being specific historical figures or specific historical events. Okay, that makes sense. So, like, where do you put Rashomon in a timeline? I don't even know what century it's set in. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. So, that's kind of why, yes, you, you could definitely, you know, look at, like, a, a Seven Samurai. Or, and, again, I did. I look, definitely looked at Seven Samurai, but, again, it wasn't about a specific event. I couldn't even figure out. Maybe I could probably narrow it down to a century, but then what do you talk yeah. about? the emperor at the time who wasn't involved with the movie at all. So it's tough. But again, that's why when you suggested at least doing this to talk about Kurosawa, I was like, no, you're absolutely right. And this is, I there's, there's two directors who baffle me that they are not household names, even this far after their careers. Cause we still all know Hitchcock is pretty much a household name, but Kurosawa, the other one's Billy Wilder. And we could talk about him another time, but Wilder and Kurosawa are just the two that are such groundbreaking, important filmmakers that anybody who's even remotely interested in film as an art has to become familiar with their stuff. I want to read some quotes here from some pretty significant people that kind of highlight what I'm talking about here. So here's uh, Martin Scorsese said, Kurosawa is my master. Steven Spielberg said, I have learned more from him than almost any filmmaker on the face of the earth. I actually transcribed these quotes from a video. So it's not like someone supposedly said they said this. Like, no, I saw them say this on a YouTube video. Like, they said this. And, you know, another person mentioned that one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, regardless of filmmaking, just artist, period. And then what you hinted at earlier is the influence that Kurosawa's work has had on movies since then. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's unreal. Even if we have listeners who have never heard the name Akira Kurosawa, I can all but guarantee that they've seen a movie that, if not a direct remake of one of his movies, is inspired heavily by one of his Abs- movies. Absolutely, and and we're going to go through them, yeah. Yeah, so um, just, a, just a few examples of uh, straight-up remakes. Uh, the Magnificent Seven cowboy movie. Yep. Yeah, it's a remake of Seven Samurai, just set in the West. Correct. Um, which Seven Samurai is a Kurosawa movie. Another one doing research that I guess I didn't realize until it was pointed out, the movie A Bug's Life. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Is basically Seven Samurai. And I was like, oh, yeah. 
I don't know if I've ever actually seen a bug's life, but I I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, that that makes sense. It's yeah, that you know all the all the same same beats are there. Another one of his movies that's remade a lot or has had a lot of influence uh, on other movies is the movie Yojimbo, which is another samurai movie. If anyone has seen A Fistful of Dollars, which is the first in the Dollars trilogy, which is uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, Clint Eastwood, Cowboy movie. Right, and a few dollars more, yeah. Yeah, so A uh, Fistful of Dollars is basically Yojimbo set in the West is a remake. And then there's also a movie from uh, 1996 with Bruce Willis called Last Man Standing, oh, that's which right. is Yojimbo, but set in Prohibition-era Texas or something. But that's it's a remake of a of a Kurosawa samurai movie. And I think worth mentioning is the extent to which when we say remake, I don't mean like, oh, it's a Western loosely based on the same idea. Like to the point like the no, famous no, no. Kurosawa gets credits in these movies. Yes. So like the like the scene I always remember from Yojimbo so where in a in a fistful of dollars, the famous scene is he like walks by the coffin maker and says how many coffins he's about to need because he's about to, you know, kill these guys. And he's like and he's on the way back, he basically kills four instead of three or whatever, and says, My mistake four and then like that is straight out of the samurai movie where he does the yes. same thing before he gets in a sword fight like it's almost beat for beat a remake and it's yeah it's, it's it's actually really neat it's almost more fun probably as a modern viewer to watch the western first and then go back and watch the samurai movie i would say which is normally yeah. the opposite of how i'd recommend it but i think with these yojimbo and then sanjuro is the sequel to it that's basically a few dollars more right yeah it's 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 so fun and now you can't talk about Kurosawa without talking about Toshiro Mifune, who is the lead character in most of his movies. Not in Akiru, so we're kind of getting off base here. But uh, Toshiro Mifune, and I, I'm trying, I, I feel like I'm saying that that wrong, but amazing, amazing actor who is the main samurai in those movies. And I don't remember much about these movies, you know, Yojimbo in them, but I remember Mifune, like... He just is so iconic and just the way he he's this amazing warrior who's just kind of wandering around, but also kind of casual and the way he like doesn't put his arms out in his kimono and he kind of has them like just folded around like almost like he doesn't have arms in almost like a silly little kid way. But then he pulls out the sword and kills a bunch of people like, yeah, <laughs> and he just kind of always has this scary swagger yet a smile at the same time. And again, part of that's the character, but part of it is just uh, Mifune is an actor and they collaborate. I think it was, I saw 15 movies that these two did together. And oh my gosh, it's like Kurosawa was amazing. And part of that, though, has got to be Mifune's influence. Even that kind of thing is done then so often in these Western movies, like the unassuming guy. True. That, you know, just kind of comes into town and just turns out to be a total badass. Right. And that's Mifune, right? And I, I mean, I'm sure yeah. there's other movies that had that before, but man, Mifune made it more famous than the Western before the Westerns did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's just so cool, like you know, seeing seeing the westerns and like you know, seeing the the like the cool iconic shots, and then watching the Kurosawa movies. And I think you're right for Western audiences, it probably is better to watch the westerns first and then watch the samurai movies. But yeah, just seeing like you know the shots and the scenes, and then seeing like the exact same thing but with samurai, uh, it's just so cool. <laughs> and, and 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 we're not done. There's a, there's there's a few more we we need to mention right. here. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, we let's let's do let's do the Star Wars thing first. So Star Wars is also very heavily drawn from the basically the plot of the original Star Wars film is yes. very close to Hidden Fortress, 
Right. Which I guess like people who had seen or read the first draft of the script, if it would have been made from the first draft, we would be talking about it just like Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven or Jimbo and Fistful of Dollars, like basically space opera, straight up remake of Hidden Fortress. So I never thought about it that way, where it was even more direct, almost like he was doing, instead of doing a Western version of a samurai movie, he was going to do a space version of a samurai movie. Again, Hidden Fortress, I mean, if you're going to watch Kurosawa movies, it's a little lower down on the list of the ones you need to see. But the idea that you have two peasants droids helping a yep. princess escape from the empire with the help of an old warrior uh guy who's trying to you know so basically there's not really a luke character but it's basically right. obi-wan leia and r2 and c-3po in hidden yes. fortress very right. directly the same plot yeah and running away from darth vader right right yeah so that's all in hidden fortress and even um so george lucas he, he has talked before about Kurosawa's influence on his work, but I mean, you can you can see it too. Like, I mean, Darth Vader's helmet looks like a samurai helmet. Yep, yep. And like lightsaber duels or samurai swords. Yeah, li- lightsabers are, are are samurai swords exactly. So in the later Star Wars movies, they've kind of gotten, I guess, you know, where they can do a lightsaber with one hand. But the original notes were it was a two handed weapon, like a samurai sword would be. Right. Another one, and so there's been a lot of people or a lot of movies based off of this, but not as directly would be Rashomon. Which I would say, and I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, but I would almost say that like a Rashomon movie is almost a genre like in itself. That's probably a better way to. No, that's probably a better way to say it because there's not a movie that's directly based off Rashomon, but there are Rashomon type movies. So the idea in Rashomon is the whole idea of an unreliable narrator, and you get a story told from three different points of view. So it almost tells the whole story from scratch three different times. And each one's different, and you actually ultimately don't know the actual truth, and that's kind of the whole point of the movie. And the story that they're talking about is the rape and murder of a woman, and this movie's from 1950 Japan. It's just fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Honestly, that would probably be my number one recommendation. If you've never seen a Kurosawa movie, start with Rashomon. Yes. And you will be quickly hooked. And then the last ones I wanted to mention, this goes the other way. Movies that... Kurosawa based on other projects and that's his ones based on Shakespeare okay so on top of everything else we just talked about he did a couple movies based off Shakespeare plays that he turned into samurai movies so Throne of Blood is straight up Macbeth like same same as you were saying like Kurosawa getting writing credits yeah Shakespeare gets the you know inspired by or based on for Throne of Blood it is literally it is literally oh my gosh it's literally Macbeth (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome it is actually Macbeth as a samurai movie like beat by beat with the witches and everything and then the other one that I actually probably preferred Throne of Blood but it was actually his last best picture nominee was Ron and he had, actually his lone best director nomination because I feel like Hollywood was a little late to the game in rewarding his work so Ron in 1985 is King Lear okay so that's like his last big samurai epic Almost three hours, Samurai Epic, and it's King Lear, and that was his lone director nomination. Speaking of, of the Academy, 
how did he never get any director or best picture nominations before? Is it just because none of his movies were popular in America because they're all in Japanese? I'd have to do a little more research on that because I don't know to what extent any foreign films crossed over into the Oscar war- world. Like they were seen, obviously people were seeing the movies and they were having success because yeah. we even talked about that with Pather Panchali getting some love in, in the 50s. Yeah. I won't say it was late to the game. Like maybe by the time everybody saw Seven Samurai, it was two years later, and you don't nominate it at that point. I, 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 okay. I, I really don't understand. Because, like, I don't understand. It's one of those things where, like, whatever movie actually won that year, there's no way that they're as, as <laughs> good or as influential as whatever Kurosawa movie came out that right. year. Right. Everything we just mentioned, it's like, yeah, you're right. None of that stuff was getting Best Picture nominees. It's a good question. I, because he deserved it. I mean, Rashomon should have won Best Screenplay. I don't care what it was up against. Yeah, for sure. Kurosawa did ultimately win a honorary Oscar in 1990, but yes. Yeah, so Hollywood and movie makers all around the world recognize the greatness, importance, and genius of Kira Kurosawa. And Logan and I heartily recommend his work. And again, you know, some of it's, it's some of it's not for everybody. Like I did watch his Dreams from 1990. Didn't really care for it as much. But his samurai stuff is like it's yes that that's that's super accessible. Anybody yes. can enjoy the samurai movies. Yes, and 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 then Akira. That's again not not really in either category there. Right. Yeah. So back to Akira specifically. Part of the reason it is so engaging, aside from the performances and the script and everything, it it is the direction. You watch this movie and you can just tell, like some of the shots and like the iconic idea that this guy died on the swing in the park he got built during like a light snow and they kind of show that image of this old man on the swing set in the snow and that's even like the cover of the dvd and it's and singing singing that song singing the, the same song. sad song and and we should also mention akira means to live it's just japanese for to live which i yeah. did see some of the people thought it was a little maybe too cheesy of a title but kurosawa ultimately won out you know it's one of those things it's like his movie about the seven samurai is just named seven samurai Right, but that's a little different than making than making it the theme. Like be like making that one, I don't know, like uh good versus evil. Like be calling it'd be like calling Seven Samurai good versus evil. Yeah, I guess. But anyway, it's you know, yeah, great direction. It, it, it shows it shows. Like just the, the filmmaking, just some of the images in Ikiru, they're 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 just interesting. It's intriguing to watch his movies. Like they're just well shot and he's just a high level director. It it's just uh there's just no denying it. Even this movie, even Ikiru has had multiple I mean, there's there's an actual like made-for-TV movie in Japan. Oh, right, a, a right. Direct remake that's called Akiru, but there's another made-for-TV movie called High and Low in Japan, which is also based on Akiru. And I guess there was a movie in uh, 2010 that came out with Javier Bardem that was oh, huh. directed by Alejandro Inuritu called Beautiful, and it's basically oh, uh, I've seen that. Yeah, it's it's. Javier Bardem is diagnosed with cancer and making peace with his existence in his final days. Oh, true. The, the the specifics are so different, it never crossed my mind. But yes, I would say that's accurate. And that's beautiful. That's actually oh, that's uh, that's a very depressing movie. It's even it's dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about the plot being so similar. Uh, and then yeah, Akira is a one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Not not surprising <laughs> and. Oh, we probably are running out of time. I could go through here, you know, movie by movie and kind of say how highly each of these movies are ranked on the IMDb Top 250. But yeah, they're they're all up there. Everything we've talked about and some of the others. And so at least probably the five or six we've mentioned by name are worth checking out. And frankly, there's there's some of his I still haven't seen yet. I just, you know, it is kind of hard to sometimes find them or make time for them. But it's, uh, it's worthwhile. 
they're they're those movies that you're always like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll watch that, you know, maybe right. watch that some other time. Right. And, but when you do finally make time for them, you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have watched this years ago. Yes, and yes. multiple times. Since yes, because actually, there's actually Rashomon is probably the only one I've seen more than once. I've, I think I've seen Rashomon three times, and everything else I've only seen once, and I need to watch them yeah. again and and again and catch. Oh, sorry, Ikiru I've now seen twice, and then catch up with some of the ones I've I've missed, and. Yeah, so thanks for listening to our, what do you even call it, our uh, our worshiping of Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> <laughs> we will continue next Tuesday in South America for a couple weeks, uh, first with Madonna in Evita. <laughs> <laughs>